Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Hi and welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today's episode is about how to innovate in a time of crisis. Innovation is generally not a priority when times are turbulent. Does it even make sense to innovate when your company faces great challenges in terms of surviving? Today's guest believes so. Bruno Peschitz, although Croatian-born, he lives in Norway and works as a consultant for some of Norway's largest companies. He is also an active member in the global startup community, co-founder of Norwegian Lean Startup Circle and Founder Institute Norway. But what I think is one of the coolest things about Bruno is that he co-created the awesome board game Playing Lean with, amongst others, Alexander Ostevaller and Ash Maoria. Welcome, Bruno. Thank you very much, Lucas. Happy to be here. I'm happy you are here. And um, I've gotten to know you quite a bit uh, the last six months, and I would probably describe you as a non-bullshit innovator. Is that an accurate uh, description? <laughs> well, I'm honored that you describe me that way. And uh, yes, I completely support it. I have to be a bit immodest. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, Bruno, uh, let's get right to it. Uh, when you work with Norwegian companies, what are the common uh, mistakes they do in terms of innovation? Well, l- let's start. let's start with kind of uh, what I believe innovation is. And uh, that's something that I found to experience is more important that uh, we as a group of people agree on than that there is a most correct definition. So kind of in general, when I talk about innovation, it's the act of creating something new that creates value. And this new and value is relative. So there must be value for the creator, the organization innovating, and for the customers or users receiving it because they define what value is. And new is not novelty. So it doesn't need to be new to the world, but needs to be new to these people that are involved. So with that, that to the side. So that's my framing of innovation because I guess we'll be using that word a lot in the next uh, 30 to 60 minutes. So one mistake I often see is misalignment. So kind of uh, Norwegian companies say we want to be innovative, we want to invest in innovation, but then there is no clear connection with their position in the market and what I want to achieve and how does actually innovation fit into it. 
So innovation is not just about creativity and uh, marketing gimmicks and PR stunts, but it should really support the business strategy. And how this reflects within a larger organization, I mean, large organization, even a small one suffers from it. So let's say an employee brings forward an idea and someone needs to assign some money to it or review it. And then they say, well, it's not strategically aligned. But what does that mean? How can you measure this strategic alignment? It's exactly on looking, okay, what is the corporation trying to achieve and how can innovation contribute to that? If that is clear, then it's easy to decide, is this idea worth or not worth investing in? So that's that's one mistake. Another mistake is going on a completely different side of the spectrum and saying, let's go all in. So a CEO loves the idea and it might come from a talented employee who is also very... uh, how to say, politically savvy, knows how to navigate the organization, knows how to speak to the right people. And it's like, oh, this is perfect idea. 300 million kroner. Let's put it in. Let's just crank it out. Two years later, it's such a flop that no one wants to talk about it. And if you mention it in the organization, people just give you a blank stare like, well, what are you talking about? That, that never happened. So it's like these two spectrums are very, very damaging. So there needs to be alignment. It's not necessarily top down, but there needs to be alignment. And then there needs to be more of a, let's call it portfolio thinking, like investment thinking, where we try to chunk the investments. So, okay, this is very promising, but here is, I don't know, 200,000 kroner. Check out if there is someone who actually wants that and needs that. So this too is something I recurrently see. It's easy to fix. But it's quite damaging. <laughs> so, so in terms of alignment, first, um, how how do you create alignment, and what do you actually actually mean by alignment? Mm. Okay, so let, let's talk about creating the, or should we talk what is alignment? So, alignment is that everybody in the organization knows why the organization exists and what are some of, let's call them objectives or targets. So for example, that's more difficult in larger organizations, but let's say it's a hundred person company. So if I come to a hundred person company, I would expect that any employee could answer these simple questions to me like, okay, what business are you actually in right now? And kind of what are your top three targets, objectives? Now, objectives might be quite mundane and simple as uh, we aim to uh, increase our revenue by 20%. Nothing wrong with having uh, simple down-to-earth objectives. So it's not about having, uh, what do they call them, uh, hairy, big, audacious goals and, and you know all, all the descriptions like that. But rather that... Everybody knows what the objective is because how can you work towards something if you don't know what you're working to? It's kind of, you know, if you don't know where you're going, then you can take any road. So something something similar is here. That, that's kind of alignment to me. And then creating alignment in the innovation space is looking at what's actually the role of innovation in organization. So innovation, I don't think that innovation is means or an end to itself. I see innovation as means to support other ends. So organization exists to do something. In most cases, organizations exist to make money. Hopefully without ruining the ecosystem, uh, ruining the human relationships. And here Norwegian businesses are, I think, quite ahead of the pack. They're they're both socially integrated and and aware and also are uh, on ecological scale a bit more aware than some other countries in the world. But back to the main point. So starting with the overall objectives and the goals and then figuring out how does innovation fit into it. So if we say that we want to become most valuable organization in our industry, uh, that we want uh, customers to love us the most and similar things, those are high 
strategic goals. Okay, but how does innovation fit into it? Being able to answer those questions and then technical details like you can write, okay, things that are in, things that are out, classical strategy stuff. That is how you create that alignment. That is on the paper. But then in reality, that needs to be communicated, not in a drawer. So kind of if it's written in such archaic jargon and wording that people don't understand it, it's useless. But if it's also not available to people, it's useless. And that's more of a big company problem. So someone somewhere in the boardroom where the consultants are without creates a new strategy. Everything is nicely worded, but it's not actually available to employees. They, they cannot walk in and look at the strategy document and say, ah, this is what we're actually trying to do. So kind of, yeah, maybe you did create a document, but don't confuse creation of these documents with actual alignment. I see. So and, uh, your other point is that uh, your uh, another typical mistake is that they go all in on one initiative and give it a lot of resources and then uh, two years later it might have plopped it might not uh, but um, you suggest another approach mm. that's correct so th- there are different ways to fi- uh, to call it it could be like portfolio approach or metered funding etc so it's not a complete novelty so organizations are already familiar with toll gate models Uh, waterfall, similar things. This is not exactly Tollgate or Waterfall, but it's tying funding to a specific set of questions. So, for example, if you have a proposal that's uh, including building new business, it's promising uh, 700 million Norwegian kroner or billion kroner in annual recurring revenues, etc., but cannot answer some fundamental questions like who is supposed to be the customer, What are they supposed to get? What's the revenue uh, stream? How are we going to define how the money is captured? How are we going to produce it? It's it's very, very basic questions. If if the proposal and the team cannot answer that in support with an evidence, why would you give them all the money that's required to build it? So then you should start and shift your position to, okay, what's the small, smallest amount of money that I need to give them in order for them to find out if this is a good opportunity? So then you start funding investigation. You start funding identification and validation. Is this a good opportunity? Then if you find out it's not a good opportunity, you maybe have spent just a few million kroner instead of 300 million. But if you do find it, it's a good, then you have an option to invest more money and to get something out of it. So by instituting metered funding and kind of chunking the investments, you actually have option at every moment to stop and cut down your losses. So, okay, you still have incurred cost, which if you completely abandon idea, is a loss. But that's it. It's much easier to absorb that loss, especially if you're a smaller organization, than if you went all in and took a drunken swing and then missed and knocked yourself out. (laughs) No recovery from that one. Okay, so you're not saying that you actually should have a lot of initiatives going on in in, in parallel, but, uh, but the ones you choose to actually pursue should be uh, should have an exploration phase and should have some uh, milestones uh, to achieve before get uh, getting additional funding so this this is uh, very situational on the size of the organization so if it's a smaller organization they will also benefit by having you know one or few critical initiatives and approaching them that way larger organization should be able to invest in more initiatives like this 
and also have meter funding at the same time. So it's kind of, you know, at the end of the day, innovation is a numbers game, but there should be very few objectives at the end, but there can be more initiatives. And that, that's that's the difference kind of where, where we draw the line. So if, if we say that the objective is to create, I don't know, uh, 30% new revenue income, or sorry, 30% of revenue should come from new products and services, then you have a very specific target. But that doesn't mean that you need to have only one project or program. You can, instead of investing all in on one, you can invest smaller sums in a larger number so you can see later, okay, these are the few bets that I really believe in. Now let's go hardcore. I see. So and th- this brings us over to the <laughs> my next question, which is about organization, because w- what you're talking about are, here is uh, actually requires some <laughs> requiring some type of organization. Mm. And um, should innovation be organized within a separate department with the head, call it head of innovation, or should it be organized within the business units? There are pros and cons for both, right? So. What is the right yes, thing? Yes, that's uh, definitely pros and cons for both. Uh, I may be a little bit um, radical here, but uh, recently there has been more and more like uh, chief innovation officer, chief entrepreneur officer, and things like that. I think that's that's the wrong way to go, because the separation doesn't make a lot of sense. So if you look, what's the purpose of innovation within organization to support the objectives? then that's exactly how it should be. Because the moment you take it out and the further you place it, people will start just pushing their responsibilities and accountability to this new unit. So you're introducing a lot of risk. I mean, innovation is risky as it is. It's difficult to bring new things to life. Uh, Failure rate is crazy. So people think Google is extremely uh, innovative. Google has failed with nearly 100% of their things. So, or alphabet, call them whatever. So they have almost 100% failure rate. They have only one business model, ads. <laughs> Everything is fitting into that. They failed to create a new business model. So that's, that's a small digression, but j- just gives you a framing. So innovation is very difficult. What I'm in favor of and have seen works really well is a system where you look at innovation at two ways. There is there are people who bring innovation to life, meaning that they're expected to create revenue out of it. For me, most natural fit for them is within a business unit, is within any unit that has profit and loss responsibility. But large organizations also usually have shared services. It's IT, internal consulting, other HR, and similar functions. So it makes sense to have a shared function that provides facilitation and innovation skills to business units. So that way you get professionals that can actually, you know, teach and learn innovation methodologies, but they help people in business units create new revenue. So they're like coaches, uh, like a support unit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, The reason, the reason that I'm advocating that as the only separation is because if you just take a unit and place it completely outside, then they usually end up in a position where they both need to generate money, but they also need to support others in the organization, which is a horrible position to be in. But and sorry to interrupt you, but isn't uh, isn't it hard to do like more of a groundbreaking innovation when you're just a support unit to the business unit? Because then you are framed the innovation will be framed within a business unit way, which is probably more incremental than uh, disruptive. 
Hundred percent. So that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to say next. That uh, in very few cases, and that's that's the disruptive innovation. It makes sense to create a separate venture or a separate unit. But that, that's that's one of the rare rare cases. So in general, when we're talking about investing in innovation, incremental innovation is absolute best. That, that's that's the one where you build the muscle. That's that's the one where we actually create revenue. And then radical and breakthrough can come out of it. So it's thinking, think it of this way. So if you go to the gym and you try to lift a lot of weights, you'll just injure yourself. Like you cannot go to the gym and lift 200 kilos. <laughs> you, you'll injure yourself. You need to work your way slowly until you reach that pay. So you need to build your core. You need to have strong muscles so your body can take more intensity. The same is here. If you immediately try to go for the most disruptive, most radical, most breakthrough, it's highest probability that you'll just fail. And in most cases, this unit that are set up separately end up with incremental innovation. So they're separate. They don't get the resources from the host organization. They don't get the talent. Uh, they don't end up delivering on the disruptive promise. So they end up in a very, very, very bad spot. <laughs> yeah, because it's hard. And uh, yes. but, but back, back to Google, you said that Google uh, fails nearly 100% and they only have this one business model. But it's, can't, you, can't innovation be used to fortifying your existing business model? Does it have to be creating a new business model? Yes, exactly. So that's incremental innovation, exactly for fortifying the business model. So most of the things that do work for them goes into fortifying the business model. So if you look at uh, autonomous vehicles that Google is investing a lot in, so that is actually embedded in their ad business model because they have uh, clear numbers on if they can draw your eyes, if they can liberate a few more minutes or hours of your time that you could spend browsing on Chrome, or on Android or whatever, they know exactly what are the numbers they can get at the end. So that is type of innovation that's embedded and fortifying their position in the ad space. Oh, so you so you so you believe actually that <laughs> the, the the rationale for going into autonomous vehicles is to liberate your time so you can use it to to spend it on on Google browser and doing search <laughs> queries. Is that is that is that the rationale for doing that? Yes, in, in most of most of uh, Google's biggest initiatives, it's kind of everything can be connected back to, to that. So that, that was an interesting, uh, I read that uh, it was maybe a few years ago now already. I think it was back in 2018, 2017. Maybe it was a TED talk or someone from Google Technician. I don't exactly remember, but that, that was, it was interesting. But okay, so, but let's say you want to do more of a disruptive innovation, which you probably mm. shouldn't do as, as, a, <laughs> as a main rule, right? Uh, at, at least that's what I believe. Um, uh, let's say you want to do that. that. In that case, you think it's a good idea to have a separate uh, innovation department? It would be better to have a specific venture. So if you're talking about disruption, right? So uh, if you're in a position that you have identified specific disruption, then you're better off setting a specific venture that's supposed to build a business around the disruption yeah, instead agree. of innovation unit that's supposed to innovate. You, you see the difference? It's subtle, but the goal is very different. If you set up innovation unit, they're supposed to innovate. But if you set up a venture that's supposed to disrupt your business model or your business, that's very different. 
I totally agree. And um, uh, frankly, the you know the the talk about disruptive innovation is probably um, is a what do you call it um, a, a, in Norway we call it blind way a, a blind <laughs> blind road uh, like mm. a, it, it's it 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 diverts your focus from what you actually can and should do. And uh, in terms of doing disruptive innovation, is if that is. is the question is stupid in, in, in a sense <laughs> why should you why should you do disruptive innovation in in first place within an organization which is created to do to do one thing right uh, is it is it you know can it actually handle it so it should be some sort of partnerships or external uh, cooperation or you know venture arm or you know investing in startups which are doing that which are disrupting your business model because they create businesses around it do, do you agree with that view so i think it's it's difficult to to disagree with that view so, <laughs> so in general what um, what i observed works really well and uh, i do support that approach is kind of for larger organizations, they have more resources. So what they need to be, they need to be aware of what's happening. So kind of if you look at what are traditional responses to disruption, it's it's very weird. It's very baffling. So in most cases, when there's an incumbent and there's a disruptor, they try to copy or mimic the disruptor. They don't try to uh, crush the competition or prevent them from entering the market. They try to somehow copy. And of course, they fail because they're completely different entities and are in completely different spaces. In most cases, when we look at the disruptors, the reason they're succeeding is that they have radically different backend, meaning they have radically different infrastructure. They have radically different cost structure by implication. So they're able to attend to the customers that the incumbent is not able to capture in some way. So how can organizations, big organizations keep Attention and awareness is exactly what you described. They could have uh, members in the ecosystem. So they could have like Startup Lab is offering that to big, big organizations. Innovation Norway. I know there's a, what Silicon Valley Outpost. Of course, there's a massive risk of that all being innovation theater or innovation poetry, like my friend Ingwer says. So it's kind of, it's, it's quite difficult. And CVC, like corporate venture capital, it's good on paper, but I haven't really seen spectacular cases and uses of it in uh, Norway. No. And I mean, there are no unicorns in Norway. <laughs> there are no unicorns in Norway, but have you seen examples of uh, successful CVCs in, uh, in other countries? So German industries, German market is quite developed in uh, that regards. So the German companies do use CVC quite aggressively both to extend their core business, but also to what, what you mentioned, fortify their core business. And in general, like let, let's let's take a look at Yahoo. So Yahoo is, a, I think, a sad story or a cautionary tale, kind of because they really went on a massive spending. So that was not CVC, that was more of mergers and acquisitions. So they were gobbling up a lot of smaller companies, hoping to you know, supplement, fortify the core, extend the core. They, they were hoping to innovate through acquisitions. But the thing is, you know, like we've seen, they failed. And pretty much all the conglomerates failed. So General Electric used to be one of the biggest conglomerates, but it, you know, it, it fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you cannot buy innovation. And the, the, the closest anecdote or metaphor I can see is 
I'm back to bodybuilding, I guess. <laughs> because you cannot go and buy a better body. If you have more money, you can get better nutrition. You can get like medical professionals. You can get nutritionists. You can get uh, personal trainers. You can get all of that. And they can help you make a better body, but you cannot go out and build it. Oh, sorry, buy it. Oh. Yeah. So th- the same I see with innovation. Like you can invest in people like me and other professionals. We can come and go, but no one can walk the road for you. And in most cases, when you go, like CVC is not acquisition. CVC is investments it, for either later acquisition or for actually capitalizing on that. But again, if there is no strategic alignment, which I haven't seen that much in the companies, then it's just playing with money. And it's, yeah. Yeah, so, so but yeah, you, you mentioned it, but what, what should be the role of a CVC uh, if, you, if you're not... Um planning on buying this and uh, and incorporating it into your existing company uh, because that would probably require some organizational changes within that company. So what, what is what is a good role of a CVC? Okay, so I, I'm going to be uh, a little bit uh, brutal here. But uh, okay, there are two ways for any company that's publicly traded to increase the value of their stock. One way is to increase revenue. Simple, right? So in most cases, you will reduce cost, you will invest in innovation, product development, product interaction, marketing to increase revenue. Simple. Another way to increase your value is to be perceived as innovative. For example, Tesla. So Tesla doesn't have underlying securities and assets to actually guarantee their current valuation. So that is, you could say, branding or the story you say. So unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to frame it, the role of CVC is in the storytelling. So in most cases, it's how incumbents, like large organizations that are not perceived as innovative, they can take a little bit of that shine and say, hey, we are aware of what's happening and we're putting some money where it is. But beyond that, at least for now, it's very difficult to to extract value from it. So you're, you're basically saying that CVC... Uh, in 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 case people uh, listening don't understand what it is, it's it's like corporations investing in uh, venture or in startups. But uh, but you're you're basically saying that CVC is uh, just a marketing gimmick or uh, innovation theater. Innovation theater, if it's not connected with the overall strategic goals, and uh, marketing, if it's connected. <laughs> 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 yeah. I see, and uh, but yeah, and that that brings us over to the the next thing where we, <laughs> my next question, which is about exactly innovation theater, because innovation can often come across as a fluffy thing, mm. but but is innovation is it fluffy, or do we actually see good examples of good innovation, uh, which is creating value, or is it just our, our you know, company may mainly doing innovation just to say that they're innovative. We even have um, an award of being the most innovative company, which is which I believe is the you know totally wrong focus because innovation mm. is not a goal in itself, right? Mm. It's like having a, it's like having an award for the ones uh, you know the, the best training, right, or something like that. No, not not actually doing the hundred hundred meter meter sprint. That's not the goal, but uh, to, to win that. But it, it's you know it's to be the one who trains best for it, right? So I don't know if it's a good analogy, um, but uh, you, uh, you understand what I'm what I'm saying. 
Yeah. So uh, I would say what I observed in, in the last years being also in the, in the startup community in Norway is um, Norway has for its size invested a lot in entrepreneurial community. There are many, many uh, events there, like Oslo Innovation Week, although it has innovation in the name, it's, it's primarily entrepreneurship driven. So th there are many different events happening and you can see a lot of pitches. Okay, not so much now with COVID. <laughs> now, now we're watching them remotely. But you could see it there as well, like startup theater, entrepreneurship theater, people that are coming there just to pitch and then go to the next pitch and go to the next pitch and present again and again and again without any intent of actually building a business. So innovation theater is something similar, but it happens in corporates. So when they're going, when the reward that you mentioned becomes an end in itself, where being only perceived as innovative is an end in itself, that is what I would call innovation theater. When you go, when I walk into organization and they tell me we are doing it because we have seen it at uh, DNB or because we have seen Poston doing something similar, so we want to do it as well. That's innovation theater. When doing it just to imitate without any thought of how does that relate to you or that in your organization, that's innovation theater. And sometimes people do it by accident because they don't know better. Sometimes people do it with intent because they, they are not, they, they don't want to actually invest in innovation, but they do want to be perceived as innovative for the reasons we discussed before. But, it, but, you, it, but it drives value, right? Like you said. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, that, that so is, is it innovation because, it's, because it drives value? Yeah, that's, that's a very uh, ethical discussion. I guess I wouldn't call it innovation in that way. If you have nothing to show, like, hey, Maybe the maybe the valuation went up, but nothing was created in the process. So it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's fluffy. But um, uh, one other thing that I've uh, I've thought about is: could can startups and entrepreneurs can they be innovative in a sense? Like because is innovation something only a, a big corporations can be? Because is innovation about going from something old to something new, uh, which creates new value? Um, uh, because a startup doesn't come from something old. They just start with that something new and they they don't regard themselves as innovative in a sense. Mm -hmm. So it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm just uh, trying to um, to uh, to challenge the, the term innovation. Is it, mm -hmm. is it just for big corps, actually? Mm. I think it's a very good discussion. Maybe, maybe a bit in, a, in like... A geek space in terms of uh, like going going very very technical but uh, that's that's what i like discussing so here i think it's important to address what's what's startup versus grunder or entrepreneur etc so in, in general like, i like steve blank's definition of startup which is an organization looking for a business model because th there can be an entrepreneur that says You know, I, I want to start up meat shops in Oslo because there are no meat shops uh, that I'm happy with. So it's the business model is clear. They know what they want to get. They know the kind of value they want to provide. They, they need uh, specific assets and they're going and doing it. So I wouldn't call them a startup. But if there is a, a butcher or someone says, I want to start a meat shop in Oslo, but I'm not really sure. Like I'm not happy with how currently that is done. So I want to challenge uh, how is, I don't know, meat delivered? Uh, what are considered good meat products? Uh, how is the customer relationship? Meat done? as a service? Yeah, meat, <laughs> <laughs> meat, meat as a service. <laughs> Suddenly, you have a startup because they don't have a business model at all. 
So I would say that both of these can innovate, but it's very, very different example. I, I've been focusing mostly on corporate innovation because they're the ones that suck the most at it. Because kind of the startups, the, just by their creation, it's so uncertain and difficult that they might handle all of these things. So they have better, better things to do. And the value creation is at the heart of startups and entrepreneurs. So they're always in that mindset. But the value creation disappears in large organizations because they start, you know, shriveling and focusing on all the different things. Yeah, but is it is it possible for uh, so the the aim of a startup is to become a big corporation? Uh, <laughs> that's actually paradoxical, but but it is right. And um, so, it, but is it is it a, is it is it possible for a startup that has become a big organization to stay startupy in a way, like to to stay hungry, to stay in search of business models, or when they find a business model, are are they satisfied with that and trying to just fortify that business model? Yeah. Well, theoretically, it should be possible to remain that, to to keep that passion. But it, it's something that ne- it doesn't happen accidentally. So people need to deliberately work on it, deliberately invest in keeping that culture. And on the growth side, I just want to to mention like uh, uh, an outlier. They're really not a rule, but outlier. Uh, Basecamp. So that that is a company that has been growing. I don't know, two decades now or, or how long, and they continuously refused to turn into large organization. So although they're growing, they were refusing introducing new features. They're very focused on their core product. They tried a few more, then they closed them. <laughs> but it's kind of, they're very focused. They said, okay, we are happy with this. We continue growing our user base, but we will not turn into large organization. Most of the companies do want to turn into large organizations because they want to bring their product to the world. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what I want. And of course, then the complexity starts growing. So if they want to keep the same spirit, they must deliberately work on that. And th- there's also the whole discussion, what does it mean to be startup? Like, what are actually those those values? It's kind of, Steve Blank was revolutionary back in his time when he said startups are not a smaller copies of large organizations. That was mind-blowing. It's, it's to us today, it's like, yeah, of course they're not. But it's also big organizations are not big bigger forms of startups. It's it's it's, it's very different. You know, it's like a big baby. Yeah. An adult is not a big baby. Exactly. Well, some that, that, that's a great that's a great analogy. So so it's kind of you know some things you keep, some you drop, and what is very situational. I see. So, um, uh, given let's let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, so uh, luckily, we haven't been that impacted in Norway as uh, the rest of the world. Uh, but still, there is an impact. Uh, we've seen it uh, in Shifter. Uh, we've, you know, we talked to a lot of companies that are impacted. Mo- many companies are actually very positively impacted because they are digital companies and are delivering digital services, which is um, a good, call it a good thing within uh, within this crisis. Uh, but um, for larger organizations, does it? Make sense to invest in innovation when everything is falling apart and your your company's burning and you're only trying to survive <laughs> well if if it's the later case that really everything is falling down and burning then then you have uh, bigger issues <laughs> <laughs> then, then you need to fight for your life uh, in general when 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 we look at the numbers when we look at the decades of numbers uh, they're pretty clear. 
even in dynamic environments like COVID-19 pandemic and similar, companies that are able to invest in innovation do strengthen their competitive advantage. So the numbers are pretty clear. Another thing, and we already mentioned that several times, is that it's actually investing in incremental innovation is roughly responsible for 30% of the returns for high-earning company. Radical innovation, disruptive, etc., is usually 9% or less because of the higher risky nature. And if we look into why innovations fail, two reasons I usually talk about, so external and internal. External, everybody heard now, I, I guess, a million times, even in Norway, is building something nobody wants. Everybody's like, wow, yes, of course. <laughs> but the second one is, you know, number one reasons organization fails is themselves. No one wants to hear it. You're failing because you're tripping over yourself. Competition is not stealing your market share. They're just getting it because you dropped it. That's very different. So it's not people walking into your home and taking food out of your fridge, but it's people picking food that you dropped outside of your apartment. That's an important thing because people start talking about innovation culture, psychological safety, all these different elements. They're important. But if internally there's no support for innovating, it doesn't matter. So if I bring idea to you, Lucas, and you believe that that's a bad idea, not worth investing in, that's the end. Like w- what I have to do, I can try to work around you, change my job, bring it to someone else, but that idea is pretty much stillborn. So that is internal and external. So with that being said, investing in innovation makes sense as long as you're able to meet customer demand, customer changes. And you mentioned COVID-19 and the companies that are now suddenly seeing a lot of new traffic, the highest risk that they're running is being complacent. Like, oh, wow, this is all this traffic. Yeah, that's really nice. Okay. There is a clear reason why there is now extra traffic on digital channels. But this is a perfect opportunity to be really in touch with the customers and learn what is frustrating them and what is working for them. Because when this passes, you cannot expect that the same traffic will remain here. People do want, we we are creatures of habit. We want to go back to our old habits. There's always this strong pull. So once this is over, I mean, walking over to the next uh, store has a very big pull compared to opening maybe a a laptop or your phone and reordering something. So now is the opportunity to use it. For the companies that are in a very, very challenging position like Norwegian and Hurtigruten, I mean, they're in a tough spot. So kind of first, they need to fight for their life in most cases. That means looking at everything. Everything needs to be questioned. But the types of innovations that they're looking at should all be faced at creating new revenue. That, that's it. Because if they're looking to innovate on, on cost side, like new technologies that will dramatically reduce cost, that won't be visible now. That will be visible a decade or two decades from now. So it's kind of, they need to focus completely differently than the organizations that you described that are now seeing more traffic and aren't endangered. So does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, but um, uh, let's say you have, you are not uh, fighting for your life, but you are pretty much the same as you you were um, before the crisis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and then I, I probably understand that you would suggest that they actually should invest 
continue to invest in innovation. Mm. Uh, but but how how can organization use this crisis to innovate better? Uh, you mentioned you mentioned some of this. For example, if you have increased traffic, it gives you brings you closer to your customers, and maybe it might be easier to to identify some new customer needs that you can probably um, uh, cater to. So, but but how can innovate organizations innovate in these turbulent times? Mm, yeah. So w- what I would suggest is to use. So <laughs> it's it's a trite remark, but kind of uh, don't let the good crisis go to waste. So now is a good opportunity to really list everything that's happening in the organization, like all the projects that are considered to be innovative or doing innovation or something similar, list them all and understand, okay, everything that's happening. And then start going, everything that was overly reliant on physical channels, uh, not physical distribution, but like something where customer needs to walk into a physical place. You should question them. So like all, all of these things, you should question them Again, and see, okay, does it still make sense? So going through through all of this and selecting the few that make sense. Those that don't, maybe question them again, give another round, what we discussed before of exploration or something similar, and move on. The second is, I mean, this is standard innovation stuff, but now it's even more important, and that's communicating with customers. So like really, really understanding them. You don't understand them by not interacting with them. So of course there is an alert in looking at the data. That, that, that's, that's what digital channels provide, but that is not a replacement for understanding why do they do things. So data can only show you what they're doing, but you can try to infer from the data why they did it, but you're still missing a bit, big chunk of actual explanation. So building these channels, building closer relationship to the customer, and th- this can be simple. So Large organizations have customer centers. Just call your customers and talk with them. Of course, some of them are afraid that they will ruin a relationship or, or, or something. Of course, don't call them just for nothing, but trying to understand why are they using the service? You've probably already know that, but how did their world change? Because investing in innovation, remember what we said, like incremental innovation gives the fastest returns and is most meaningful now when there is so much risk and uncertainty. In order to find out, what kind of incremental innovation you should be doing, you need to understand how did the customer life change with COVID and everything. Priorities changed. That, that's, that's very likely. So we will see in the financial services, we will see, I assume, big changes in the habits. So real estate is going up. That's interesting, but can be explained because people are starting to invest less, but other group of people is looking at this as investment opportunity. But on the financial services, we'll probably see savings going up, people reducing their spending, other habits changing. So that is something that the companies need to be aware of. So Elkshop, for example, Amazon is entering the space, which is perfect because uh, you're entering the space at the moment of great disruption. So that's a good strategic logic on Amazon's side. But for example, if Elkshop is to react by trying to mimic Amazon at their own game, then it's accepting the, the, the challenge from Amazon and losing it. It's, there's no way around it. But if Elkshop is able to actually understand what Amazon cannot understand, then they're standing at much, much better ground. So what's so your suggestion mean? to Elkshop? Yeah, the- <laughs> what should I do? <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what to sum it up? So first would be not to accept the, the challenge from Amazon, not to try to, to use the same approaches. So Amazon has invested more in R&D than 
all the businesses, uh, all the public institutions, everything that's tracked in Norway in a single year. So all of them combined together, Amazon exists, invested more in R&D, just in R&D. <laughs> so, so trying to compete on, on that challenge doesn't make a lot of sense. So Elship has a position and is respected within Norway, but they're dealing with commodities. So if they try to compete on price, if they try to compete on cost, and if they try to compete on marketing, like we can outspend Amazon in marketing, they're sure to lose. But if they're competing in specifically being able to, to speak directly to every Norwegian commune, every Norwegian customer, then they stand a chance. There is the backend technology, fixing the website, making all of that accessible, but you know, th- that that's hygiene. That's not a differentiation. <laughs> so that's because Amazon at the end of the day is not customized. It's like a big store that offers convenience. So Elkshop needs to be convenient in a different way, it needs to be closer, it needs to be more personal and tied into Norwegian economy. So not scalable in a way, actually. Because Amazon is all about scale. Uh, exactly. All, uh, but uh, So you, you suggest that you should actually do something that's not scalable, which Amazon never would do. Th- that's, that's a good way to sum it up, is finding things that wouldn't make sense to scale outside of Norway. And th- that would be uh, very expensive for Amazon to scale. L- let's take a look at the uh, example of Cold War between USA and, and Russia, or what was that, USSR at, at that time. I think that's a great example of strategic <laughs> logic. So you, the, as the countries were competing and investing in technologies, what USA strategists decided is that they will start investing in technologies that, you know, they don't matter so much, but they're very, very expensive. Because Russians would, would always follow. It's like, oh, Americans are investing in this. We need that as well. So then Americans started picking technologies specifically on the criterion on how expensive <laughs> would it be for Russians to follow up. So it wasn't, okay, this is uh, the best for our use case, but hey, this is the most expensive. Let's do that. So this is just an example of strategic logic, how they managed to outsmart and bankrupt the competition. So in this case, Elshop must look for opportunities like this. What would be very difficult for Amazon to copy? Scale is not one of the things that's difficult for Amazon to copy. Convenience, they solved that. Uh, Subscriptions, they solved that. Uh, Platform game, they solved it. So it's kind of, (laughs) you need to find things that doesn't make sense for Amazon to solve. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, although there's there's not a specific answer, uh, but that's uh, also something <laughs> that they need to find out because uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not easy well, to. Well, yeah, sorry. We can't do free work for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we can't. <laughs> so, yeah. Fair point. Um, Bruno, we're, we're uh, just about to end this podcast, but uh, um, at the end, I would like to ask you one question, which I ask some of our guests. So what do you believe uh, about innovation that uh, most people will disagree with you on? Well, I, I felt like I, I was sharing that um, th- throughout this call, like some things uh, people vehemently disagree with. So uh, one in the beginning, I would say, like, innovate or die, I I just don't think makes a lot of sense. And uh, people do agree with it eventually. So it's not something that would immediately disagree. Well, I would would say that uh, the discussion that we had around uh, the structure 
kind of should there be a separate unit? That, that's something that a lot of people are advocating currently. And I just disagree with that notion. Like, like th- there are now ridiculous notions like that there should be like chief entrepreneur officer reporting directly to the board, not even to the CEO. It's yeah, if you're doing that, just set up a different company, then wh- wh- why complicate your life that way? <laughs> so so I, I would say that, you know, what people also sometimes disagree, there are two camps. That is that innovation cannot be repeated. That's something so crazy and out of bounds and human comprehension that we can only depend on luck. That, that's common. Like, that, that's just not true. So it is possible. There are some things like human creativity that we cannot put into numbers, but it's perfectly fine. Use human creativity to drive innovation, but make sure that the part of your innovation process are repeatable. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a good um, a good conclusion of this uh, uh, podcast, uh, Bruno. Uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, being able to speak to our listeners. Uh, I've enjoyed this talk a lot and I hope our listeners uh, did it as well. Uh, thank you very much and uh, good luck uh, with your company and the way forward. Thank you very much, Lucas. It's been a pleasure.